The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I thought I would read for you from Acts 20, verses 17 through 32, this very direct address of the apostle to a group of elders. By the way, it's a unique passage in Acts. We have a number of speeches from Paul in Acts. Some of them are lengthy. This one is very unique. I was surprised the first time I learned it because it's spoken to only Christians. All the other passages, all the other speeches are either to the public in general or in some cases they are defenses in a court of law or before hostile people. But here is Paul speaking to very dear friends of his, elders in a church that Paul had founded and served beside these folks. And I'm going to try to bring out some of the emphases, not all, of what is in this address, this exhortation of Paul this morning. Let me read Acts 20, beginning at 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arrive men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is God's holy word. One of the things certainly we ask 
from those who are singled out, nominated, elected to office in the church is commitment. You know, commitment can mean a lot of different things to different people. Sometimes it just means whatever a person wants it to mean. I actually heard of a young man, don't know whether this story is true or not, but this young man was supposedly madly in love with a woman of his dreams, and he, let's say he sent her an email because you wouldn't send her a letter. There are no more love letters, only love emails and love Facebooks these days. He sent her a communication, and he said this, My dearest, for you I would climb the highest mountain. I would swim the widest stream. I would cross the burning desert. I would die a martyr burned at the stake for you, my darling. And I'll see you Sunday at 1 p.m. if the Steelers game isn't being shown on TV. (laughs) That's what commitment means to a lot of people. I'll do something, but it, it has to suit me. I heard a very different definition of commitment, and this is a factual quote from about 150 years ago. Some missionaries going to the field of what was then called long ago the Fiji Islands in the South Pacific, where primitive people lived. Some of them were actually cannibals, were known to have speared and eaten outsiders. These missionaries were going there, and the captain of the ship that was taking them wondered if they knew what they were getting into. He was a kind man. He felt, I better warn these people. I wonder if they really know what they're going to face. And so he told them about these cannibals, and he said, look, you're going to lose your lives among these savages. The leader of the band was a man named James Calvert, a pioneer missionary leader in the Pacific area. James Calvert told the captain of the ship, Thank you for telling us, but don't worry. We already died before we came. Now, you Christians should know what he means. We already died before we came. If they kill us, that's of no real significance. For we died to Christ, and we're alive in Christ now, and we will carry out what he has commissioned us to do. That's the commitment, isn't it? That we would wish leaders of church any church would have. Today at Westminster, you've seen us ordain and install elders and deacons and install deaconesses. You elected them as a congregation. You verified that you believed. And let me tell you, you know what? We've got these guys frantically out there running for president who are going to be really happy if they get 51% of the popular vote in this country. You voted by a minimum, I think, of 87% for any one of these candidates and said, wow, you have confidence in these people. You have confidence in their lives and in who they are, who they've been among you. I can't even imagine the ecstasy of a presidential candidate that got an 87% vote. Probably never happened in the history of our country. Well, we read today Paul's parting address to elders in Ephesus. And today I'm singling out the elder. As I said, I will speak about deacon and deaconess at a future time. But it's important now and then that we emphasize this, that you understand who elders are and at least something of what's expected of them, that perhaps you can pray intelligently for them. Acts 14, verse 23, among other texts, tells us how when new churches were formed in the Mediterranean rim by 
Paul and Barnabas, everywhere they went, they set apart elders and left those men in charge of fledgling churches. Sometimes Paul had only been there a matter of weeks and new converts responded. Or maybe there were some spiritual men already there. But in any case, Paul moved on and he left elders in charge of the church. That was the way they were governed time after time. And we know the word for elder in the New Testament is a familiar word to us, presbyteros or presbyter. You can guess where our denomination gets its name from. We are a church ruled locally by groups or teams of elders. We are presbyteros, elders, presbyterians. Now someone will tell me, yes, it does use the word bishop in the New Testament on two occasions actually. Another denomination pops up there. The word is episcopoi, bishop. But there is nothing whatsoever in the New Testament like the division of some high-ranking bishop in a tall cone-shaped hat and the local elder that we would see in some churches today. Nothing like that at all. In fact, the government is so level, so much a level playing field that bishop and elder seem to be absolutely synonyms. Overseer is another word used for those who rule. Now, as the centuries have gone along, the church has seen the reason, and actually there's biblical warrant for this as well in the letters of Timothy, to, to separate and say we have elders who are called teaching elders who primarily teach and preach, and we have ruling elders whose main gift is to rule. One is not better than the other. One is not more spiritual than the other. They are equals in every way, but they work together in a team to rule in the local church. In our Congregation, if you're curious, we have 19 ruling elders and five teaching elders on our session. That's grown over the years. It's gotten bigger as we've gotten bigger as a church. We are amazingly privileged by God to have it. If we brought all out of all the places that they are found in two services, there's probably another 30 elders who we'd say are either retired and don't wish to be in active service any longer or are just inactive at the moment as far as session service is concerned. When you see communion served here, you're primarily seeing elders. Although it takes so many men at two services to serve it, we supplement with a few deacons. But you're seeing mostly the elders either presently on the session or formerly on the session serving you in the communion time. Paul had ministered in Ephesus rather shortly before this occasion. You could Read later if you wanted to the beginning of 19. You'd find his ministry in Ephesus there. He came finding people relatively ignorant. He asked them if they'd received the Holy Spirit when they believed. They said, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. They started out at the kindergarten level. Paul stayed there two and a half years, and there was a thriving church when he left. He got basically run out of town by a riot started by a silversmith who didn't like his business being cut into because the idols weren't getting sold so well with Paul around. So he had to leave abruptly. He had no chance for parting instructions or goodbyes. He went a number of other places. In the early part of chapter 20, it tells he's going back to Jerusalem by ship and he's able to stop at the port of Miletus, which wasn't too many miles from Ephesus. So he sent a messenger and said, quick, go ask the elders if they would come and let me have a brief conference with them. I'll be here a few days. They came, and thus the text that we have today. You might guess there are three things I want to tell you out of this. There are probably six or seven or eight points that could be made, but I'll try to reduce it to three. 
first topic here as I seek to exhort in the voice of Paul as if he were the one exhorting my fellow elders is to say we have a mutual calling, a mutual calling to serve the Lord with humility. I want to point out, first of all, in verse 28, that the apostle told these elders something that might be surprising. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. If you read that, you would say, why did he say yourselves first and then the flock? Shouldn't it be the other way around? He should have said, pay careful attention to the flock. But Paul was wise. He knew that if a leader was not spiritually well-nurtured and growing and protected in his own spiritual life before God, he wasn't really going to be of much use to the flock. And so he said, take care of yourselves. Look to your own spiritual life. Look to your prayer life. Look to your study of the word of God. Cultivate private time. Look to your family. If you're married, if you have children, look to them. What are you doing? Are you nurturing and actively involved as a father with your children? Are you actively nurturing and listening to your wife? Look to these things. I think Paul would have said something I've certainly observed over the years. And, you know, you can look at different congregations led by different pastors and different elders, and they have different characteristics. Some are kind of inward looking. They don't really have an outward face to the world in ministry very much. Some are sort of crabby and cold, and some are very warm and effusive. And as you try to understand what's going on in a local church, I can tell you this. It's probably a reflection of the elders. Because churches spiritually rarely rise above the level of their ruling and teaching elders. What's being exemplified, what's being shaped in that congregation is a result of the elders. Richard Baxter was a pastor in the Puritan times. He wrote a book, Two Pastors. But I believe it applies to all elders, what he said in his book, The Reformed Pastor. Baxter said this, Take heed to yourselves, lest your example would contradict your doctrine. Lest you would unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. He said, One proud, surly, lordly word from you, one needless church controversy provoked by you, can cut the throat of many a sermon. It seems like an obvious point, doesn't it? Elders, I encourage you, watch your lives. Be in prayer. Confess your sins before the Lord first and before others. Be one who's quick to do that. Be one who loves the word of God in a regular basis. But then you come directly to the point with verse 19 and where the name of this point comes from, our mutual calling to serve the Lord with humility, as Paul says there that what he was doing among them was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Now, this is a very formidable man. If you don't figure it out by studying the New Testament, I think it could safely be said that intellectually Paul was a genius. If his IQ was not in the 180s, then they better throw out that scale because this is the smartest man I ever met, humanly speaking. I'm exempting the Lord Jesus Christ from that. But of a human being, I've never seen anyone with a more demanding intellect. I've hardly ever known of a man with greater energy and passion to accomplish things. He left younger men panting in his wake. He had religious attainments and social attainments and a pedigree and credentials and a resume. 
If this guy was running for president, they'd stop the primaries because he would stand out so tall above everybody else. That's, that's not a joke. But here was Paul, as he did on many occasions, talking about humility and tears. And you remember how this man had to constantly say in his letters that he wasn't working to put his name up in lights. That if he wanted to claim great things for himself, he could, but he wasn't going to talk about that. And in fact, he was going to regard his credentials as he called it, filthy rags. Now, my fellow elders, there's a challenge here. There's a kind of paradox here, you could say. You were chosen to be an elder by this congregation and by a nominating committee process and so on. Why? Well, because they saw something in you, in your character, in your basic way you exhibited Christ and the gospel and loved the church and worked in her. And they also looked at your marriage and said, well, if this fellow's married, he's got a, looks like a good, sound marriage there, thriving marriage. They looked at your children and said, your children aren't atheists throwing arrows at God. They said, look, this man's accomplished some things, even in his career. Look, he's a success. That's not the first thing you look at, but it's often there in an elder's life. In other words, there are things in every elder's life that you could say he could easily be proud of. He probably wouldn't have been chosen to be an elder in the first place if there weren't such things. So humility is going to be a calling of an elder, just as it was for Paul. Because you have reasons that you could fall back on and be proud. I remember vividly the experience. I've told this before. I know there are at least a few people present who were on the pulpit nominating committee that called me to this church and conducted an exhaustive examination of me on a Sunday afternoon after I had preached and taught and was ready to go take a nap, they said, let's have a three-hour examination and ask you every question we could possibly ask you. And near the end, I was really tired. My brain was about fried. And I was stopped cold by, by and remember who asked the question, one of the ladies on the committee. They had, I think they had predetermined these questions. And the question was something like, what would you say was a prevailing sin or temptation that might be an area of weakness or where brought down, not by God, but by Satan, by temptation? And I just stopped. I don't have any big skeletons in my closet. How do I answer this? I want to be truthful. And I think there was an unnatural silence. They were wondering, oh, this guy must be trying to choose among 25 things that he could (laughs) say. And I finally just sort of stammered out the one word, pride. And ever since then, I've thought if I had two hours to think about that question, that's what I would answer. Pride. Pride kills leaders. And you know what? Your friends will help kill you as they tell you what a good job you're doing, as they tell you what an admirable elder you are and how pleased they are that you're on the session or how good that class was, the best class anybody ever taught on that subject. George Whitfield, great preacher of the 18th century, was fawned over everywhere he went. His preaching was incomparable, not just for anybody of that near vicinity, but anybody from that century. When George Whitfield was preaching, there were near stampedes of people trying to get in the building. And once he was, after he had preached a memorable sermon, a woman came up and started gushing. Oh, Dr. Whitfield, oh, you are so wonderful. Oh, Reverend Whitfield, as you preach today, I thought it was an angel from heaven speaking to us. 
And Whitfield said, Madam, as I came down from the pulpit stairs just now, the devil told me the very same thing. Leaders, you need to seek to humble yourselves before God, even before your friends. Maybe you need to tell your friends, stop praising me, I can't take it. Paul says here, it's a humility that will come with tears. If your friends don't contribute to pride, let me tell you, there'll be enough experiences if you stay an elder long enough and do the work where you'll come to tears. We elders do things and face things sometimes in our session, more often in our presbytery, that want to make a grown man cry. Immorality in people's lives, marriages crumbling, Let me tell you, if you're a brand new elder, you're going to get a new pair of glasses. Not that we go around, you know, telling tales about everybody in the congregation, but as a session member, you will over time come to look at this congregation differently because you'll see, you'll see Satan's attack in lives. You'll see the brokenness. You'll see the marriages that are barely making it. Many of you don't see that as you look around this room. Your elders do. And it's enough sometimes to bring a man to tears and humble him. We cannot have this ministry or do this ministry except as we humble ourselves before God. Secondly, verses 20 and 21, we have a mutual task as well as a mutual calling, and that is to preach repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable teaching you in public and from house to house. What did he teach? Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The message is defined in advance and it's simple. The message of the cross. Repentance before the cross. Faith in Jesus Christ. Reduce it to a few words. The message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, my fellow elders, I call you to keep this church on that message. The world wants to tell us there are a lot of other messages. They say, well, come on, you better get with it there. Pastor, you've got a lot of people here. You need to have a political action committee in your church and get the right guy elected president. That's the message. Or you, you need to have a better social service agency than what you've got there. That's the message. You need to have better fellowship and better children's things there and teach morality to the next generation. That's the message. No, that's not the message. No political action committee is going to be formed in this church. It's not our message. The message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when that message is communicated by the Holy Spirit to the lives of people, transforming those lives, going out into those people, let me tell you, we will influence politics and education and business, and technology, and the arts, and the media, and everything else you can think of, because Christ in you will do that. But elders, I call you to keep us on message. Our message is the gospel, the grace of God, the sovereignty of God, redemption by Christ, new life in the Holy Spirit. You keep us on message. You knock me out of this pulpit if I get off the message. I need you, brothers, to pray, to hold up hands like Moses' hands were held up, to make sure we don't go astray from our message. 
Thirdly, this. I emphasize the latter part of what Paul said here as he was closing this out in verse 28. And he spoke to these elders, and he he knew he wouldn't see them again. By the way, there's a very tearful scene I didn't read at the very end of the chapter. These men were brothers. They loved each other. The tears were flowing as they took Paul to the boat and kissed him goodbye and knew they wouldn't see him again. But here he is saying to them, we also have a mutual responsibility, and that is to oversee God's entire church bought with the blood of Christ. Actually, there's an unusual expression here. It says, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Does God have blood? That's an unusual expression, isn't it? We know, of course, it means Christ, the Son of God, who shed his blood in atonement for the people of God. But I'm focusing on the word here. As he said, the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church. I think that's one of the most important practical definitions of what an elder does. An overseer kind of picture the guy, you know, in the old cowboy movies, uh, the, cow, the, the Indian huge village would be down the valley. And here's, here's cowboy Bob who has to take off his white hat so he can creep up to the edge of the cliff and look over to see the whole spread of the Indian village down below. That's what an overseer does. He looks over to see the big picture. And he keeps the big picture ever in mind. Now, elders certainly, they're also shepherds, you know. And there's a lamb here giving birth that needs help. And there's a lamb over there with a broken leg. And there's a lamb over here with a disease. He needs to give that individual attention or at least someone under the ministry team that he is supervising gives that attention. It may not always be the elder himself. But he also needs to be the big picture man. I think particularly in a larger church, people lose sight of this. They say, I've never had an elder in my home. What's wrong with these elders? Well, these elders are very busy creating an entire network of ministries where hopefully you're in a home fellowship group. You're getting nurtured. They're creating the place and their support for people who counsel, people who meet brokenness and needs. Pastors who are in those hospitals, deaconesses, deacons, giving practical helps all over the place. They're supervising the big picture. We are shepherds. We aren't always going to behave exactly like shepherds in a church of 100. And a lot of times people get really disappointed with us for that reason. You're not doing what my elder did back there. What was the size of that church? Oh, we had about 60 members. How many elders do you have? Five. And they visited us every year. Oh, really? Well, send us about 100 more elders and we'll do the same. Sometimes we feel a lot more like sheep ranchers than shepherds. But we're not trying to apologize nor defend ourselves and say, we're going to be distant from you. What we want to do is create a ministry network that oversees the good of a lot of people. And we're very mindful all the time that the charge, the trust God has put in our hand is something of rare and wonderful value. Christ gave his blood for this church that he entrusted to weak human elders. What was he doing? What was he thinking? We could mess up far too easily. We could not perhaps be effective in, in dealing with somebody in a discipline case. And they walk away mad and they reject us. And who are you to tell me how to live? And we hear that all the time, Is by the way, when discipline comes along. 
People who stood and said, I believe in Christ, I'm his disciple, I will live my life as a Christian, I'm under the authority of the session of this church, just wait till we say, hey, brother, you can't have those vows and live with your mistress. Who are you to tell me? We're your elders. Coming with the news of what the gospel is and what you said it ought to be doing in your life, but it doesn't appear to be doing. Well, there's so many things to say. Time fails us to even tell of the wolves Paul warned about. Three different times in my six churches I've pastored, I preached on this text when I left the church. Because it's, it's a departure message. It's a natural. And I mentioned the verse that Paul said, watch out for the wolves. And they're going to come not just from the outside, but even from the inside. And each time I thought, well, that's not going to happen in this church. One of those churches doesn't even exist anymore. Because the wolves came. And they left nothing but hair and blood on the snow five years after I was gone. Incredible. You say, that's for real? Sure is. Elders, we're called to guard as well as teach and nurture and rule. And God has entrusted the souls of believing men and women and children into our custody. He saves them. We don't. Boy, is that a relief. But he asks us to guard them and counsel them and bind up their wounds as best we're able to. An enormous responsibility. I think that's why Paul had to end with a commendation. Look what he said here. Verse 32. It's as if he was saying, do you think I've said you have to do this all by yourself? No, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God is ultimately going to do this. God's word is the power in our midst. That's the message. All we have to do is lean on him, look to him, listen to him, and declare that which he has given us to declare. And that way, when his church is handed over to Christ one day, with every part and every individual of the covenant, complete and whole and, and in Christ's hands, it won't be anyone's charge to say, oh, look at those elders back there at Westminster. They did such a wonderful job. We'll be looking and saying, only by the grace of God and the power of God and the word of God did it possibly happen? Charles Spurgeon, a great British preacher, wrote a book about his pastoral ministry. And this, again, was about a pastor, but my brother elders, it's for us. Spurgeon said, some years ago, I received orders from my master, charging me to stand at the foot of the cross until he comes and there to point others to him. He has not come yet, so I mean to stand there until he does. Brothers, the foot of the cross needs sentinels. Will you stand there with me and point people to the one place where they can find life? I pray you will. Father, thank you for your church. I'm full of joy today as I think 
of the strengths of your church. Yes, weaknesses. We're all sinners here, saved by grace. Every elder included, every pastor included. And yeah, what a strength of talent, funds, time, abilities, willing hearts are here. Will you use this church in greater ways in this year, 2012, than you ever have before? May her elders be at the forefront, standing there like sentinels to direct your people and to direct people who know you not at this moment to the foot of the cross. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.